Governor J.B. Pritzker and Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson are working together to land the DNC convention in Chicago. And I'll talk with Crane's reporter Ali Marathi for the latest about global restructuring moves coming from Chicago-based McDonald's and about a local plant-based food startup that's just raised $5.5 million. Right. So more funding is needed to sort of scale them up. Their products are not to market yet, but they do have eight restaurant partners that they are getting ready to launch with. And they wouldn't tell me exactly when, but I think it's going to be later this year. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, April 11th. When it comes to your small business, every dollar and every minute counts. So why would you work with a bank that doesn't make your business a priority? Wintrust's team of dedicated local experts can guide you through the SBA application process and help you secure the funds you need to succeed. Last year, they lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making Wintrust the state's number one SBA lender. Start expecting more from your bank. Visit Wintrust.com SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Chicago startup Aqua Cultured Foods raised $5.5 million, which it plans to use to get its plant-based seafood alternatives into restaurants. I'm joined now by Cranes reporter Ali Marathi to talk it through. Okay, we've heard a lot, Ali, about red meat alternatives and chicken alternatives. I don't think we hear a lot about plant-based seafood. No, you really don't. And this product that they're working on is very interesting because it basically mimics the tuna, you know, the shrimp, the scallop very closely. It looks exactly the same. Interesting. Yeah. The final product is basically um, like a whole muscle cut that they want to be used in like a sashimi or nigiri product. So the, the consumer, the diner, theoretically wouldn't really be able to tell that much of the difference. What is it made of? What plant exactly? It's not necessarily made from a plant exactly. They won't say exactly how they make it because it's proprietary, but they do use fermentation and they sort of add this nutrient-rich solution to organic matter to feed the microbes. And then they introduce a strain of fungi, which is mushroom. It's grown in these trays that are stacked vertically, so it takes very little space, very sustainable in that way. After about 10 to 14 days, the product is about an inch thick, and at that point, it tastes like nothing and is mostly colorless. So they harvest it, they pasteurize it, and then you know the tuna product, for example, it's colored with a beet-derived food coloring to give it sort of that pinkish color. The scallop product's left uncolored because that's more mm-hmm. whitish color. Um, and then they sort of just cut it and shape it into the finished substance that just mirrors whatever fish they're trying to mimic. Do you know their origin story of how they came up with this? So the founder, her name is Anne Palermo. Uh, she's also the CEO. She was in finance and oh, just told me she was very entrepreneurial and you know didn't really want to be in finance anymore. Struck out on her own, started her own company, um, was working in food development there and just started to learn more about how unsustainable our food system is. She said when she became a mom, that sort of really you know woke her up to, to a lot of the unsustainable fishing practices out there in the world and, you know, the population explosion, particularly in Asia. Um, She started looking into overfishing and stuff there and just realized that, you know, we have to do something about this. And this type of company has attracted a lot of funding from big name VCs in the past, right? So this 
round of funding that I just wrote about for Aqua. It's one of their first rounds. They've raised about $8 million in total. They're still a pretty young company, just launched in 2020. But then there's another company that I've written about before called Nature's Find, also based in Chicago. And they were also kind of a similar fermentation process, if I remember. Exactly. A very similar process. You know, the again, different proprietary processes, but um, both grown, you know, using fungi, using fermentation in kind of a very small area in a sustainable way. And that company, again, it's a couple years older than Aqua, but it's drawn attention from big name investors like firms backed by Al Gore and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. And they've raised almost $510 million. So you know, that's a ton of money, obviously. Their products are in market already and Aquas are not yet. So you can kind of see where their different processes here. Yeah. And is that process of, of kind of growing this seafood alternative, is that something that can be done just at huge scale, I assume? Or are they at that point yet? Or is that kind of what more funding is needed for? Right. So more funding is needed to sort of scale them up. Their products are not to market yet, as I said, but they do have eight restaurant partners that they are getting ready to launch with. And they wouldn't tell me exactly when, but I think it's going to be later this year. Oh. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, I mean, is it a sushi restaurant? You know, is it like a plant-based restaurant? So I think that'll be fun to see. But yeah, they have this facility. It's about 5,000 square feet and they use just a very small portion of that to do the actual fermentation process. I was picturing like a very small studio apartment when she was describing it to me. (laughs) That's just where the fermentation happens because again, it's on these trays that are stacked vertically. So you can kind of scrunch a lot in there. And it takes only 10 to 14 days for them to get the product to harvest. And then they can kind of start the process over. She told me that they can produce about 5,000 to 10,000 pounds of product per month Wow! um, once they scale up. Yeah. And what about the nutritional part of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So Aqua's products have no gluten, soy, or protein isolates, which are commonly used in meat alternatives. So for example, you hear a lot about pea protein being used these days. Um, They're safe for people with seafood allergies. They don't contain any animal-derived ingredients. They have comparable protein to seafood and also omega-3 fatty acids, which is, you know, that nutrient that a lot of people get from seafood. They have added those in, the omega-3s. There's no cholesterol, no saturated fats. Um, It also has fiber content, which seafood does not have, and Mm -hmm. they uh, boast the fact that they're safer to eat raw, you know, than, than a raw fish. Yeah, yeah. We don't hear a lot about um, seafood alternatives the way we do about, you know, chicken and burgers and things like that. So it'll be interesting. Do you know which eight restaurants they're launching with? No, they won't say yet. That's what I'm Mm. very excited to find out. The mystery. Okay, well, we'll have to check back with you when you find out because I'm I'm very curious to try that. Well, in other restaurant news, we talked last week about McDonald's. We knew there was uh, some restructuring happening. You knew there would be many layoffs, but uh, we weren't quite at that point yet when we talked What has happened since then? Yeah, so we have learned a few different things coming out of McDonald's, and we know that the layoffs are going to be in the hundreds. They haven't said anything more specific than that, and they also haven't really spelled out exactly what teams were targeted by the layoffs. However, we have heard from the CEO who has basically recognized the uncertainty that some of these changes have caused internally. You know, he sent out an email late last week that we obtained a copy of basically saying, you know, we're saying goodbye to some very valued colleagues. Um, We know it's difficult and a lot to digest. And he noted that some of these layoffs are still going on in other parts of the world. You know, McDonald's operates in somewhere close to 115 markets internationally. So 
Uh, I thought that was kind of telling that they're delivering this news around the world. Last week, they closed their West Loop headquarters Monday through Wednesday so that they could deliver some of this news virtually to people. And people found out not just if they were getting laid off, but also if they were getting promoted, if they were going to stay in the same role, if their team was getting reorganized. The Wall Street Journal also was able to confirm that some people had their compensation packages cut as well. So I think we're going to continue to find out kind of the ripple effects of this. And um, just as I've talked to people inside the organization, you know, on background, a lot of the employees also don't have a full grasp quite yet of how wide reaching these layoffs were. I think now that they're back in the office this week, you know, we may start to see more of what that looked like. Did you get a sense of, was there any backlash from the decision to do all of this virtually? Or is that kind of, have we just sort of, that's normal and that's okay now? You know, I've seen a lot about that. There have been a lot of pundits weighing in and a lot of stories that were done, uh, the national media covered. And it kind of goes both ways, right? You know, uh, someone familiar with the situation told me that that decision was made basically because they wanted to be kind to people and give them space if they were told they were being laid off, you know, to be able to just be in their own home and, you know, take that news as it comes and not have to watch, you know, if they were safe they were not affected by the layoffs to not have to kind of watch their colleagues make this sort of walk of shame out the door while they're carrying all of their belongings from their desk, you know? So that was why that decision was made internally. And even though the offices were closed Monday through Wednesday uh, and technically reopened Thursday and Friday, employees were told they could continue to work from home the rest of the week if they wanted. Now, a lot of experts have kind of weighed in saying, yeah, we understand why this virtual layoff thing had to happen during the pandemic, but it really is considerate if you have that meeting in person, if you're able to shake your employee's hand and say, hey, you know, you've given a lot to this organization. Thank you for that. So, you know, we have people on both sides of the aisle weighing in on that for sure. I, yeah, I can see the same. I can see a feeling of like, you, you made me come all the way in and just for this, I could have stayed in pajamas at home. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? But also, yeah, there is value, I think, in like, okay, let me say bye to people. Let me, you know, right. feel like my contribution mattered. I think that's fair. Yeah, It's interesting how that might shift as we normalized hybrid and remote work a little bit more. Yeah. And, you know, one thing too, that we should say is on Friday, we learned a little bit more just kind of combing through LinkedIn and looking at who was impacted by these layoffs. And I saw anybody from, you know, there was a U.S. vice president who had been with the company for 42 years, according to his LinkedIn profile. You had newer employees. I saw somebody from McDonald's Czech Republic, you know, that um, had posted and you could translate the post and sort of see that uh, she had been impacted by the layoff. So it was really, it ran the gamut. You know, it wasn't just new employees, wasn't, you know, just international employees. It really um, seems to have affected a lot of different stratas of the organization over there. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine an organization that big. All right. Well, we will continue to check back with you on that too. Thanks so much, Allie. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a federal appeals court on Friday upheld the dismissal of an antitrust suit filed against Chicago Parking Meters Incorporated. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Audio Studio presents Four Star Stories, The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, a four-part series reported by Albie Galoon. John Thomas has stories, lots of them. But you have to ask, how much of what he says is real? You could drop me in any country in the world, I'll be a millionaire in six months. Anyway. I'm Albie Galoon, 
And when I began on the real estate beat at Cranes two decades ago, I began hearing the name John Thomas a lot. Look, John is a narcissistic egomaniac. Thomas was making his name in Chicago real estate. He had a brash New York swagger and a 350 pound frame that got him noticed. Were you a good football player? I was, I used to bench 590 pounds. Come on. That's a fact. He avoided one trip to prison by working as an informant for federal prosecutors. But Thomas managed to wind up behind bars anyway. So I walk outside and there's 10 FBI agents wearing fucking blazers around my car. These are the felonious adventures of a Chicago mole, told in four chapters. I said, what did I do this time? They said, nothing. I said, can I go home? I said, today you can. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Four Star Stories from Crane's Audio Studio. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that Governor J.B. Pritzker and Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson met for about an hour Friday afternoon, just a month before Johnson will take office with an agenda that relies on help from Springfield. After a closed-door meeting at Pritzker's state office in the West Loop, the two said they hope to forge a solid partnership to push common goals. But the recently re-elected governor did take a moment to criticize a portion of Johnson's plan to increase corporate taxes to bring an additional $800 million in revenue to the city. Lawrence noted in reporting that Pritzker stressed the two did not get into the details of Johnson's plan, but he pointed out he does not support a financial services tax that he believes would force companies to conduct the transactions elsewhere. Johnson's revenue plan, which he's called a living document that could change before it materializes in official form later this year, includes what is described as a small financial transaction tax that would place a $1 or $2 surcharge on contracts he says would not be large enough to have a significant impact on trading activity, according to a Crane's questionnaire he filed in March. Pritzker did acknowledge that Johnson faces a challenge in balancing the city's budget and didn't pour cold water on other proposals that Johnson has floated. Lawrence noted that Johnson also said there is urgency for the General Assembly to approve an increase in the real estate transfer tax on the sale of properties above $1 million and said he's, quote, committed to work with the General Assembly as well as the governor to make sure those critical investments take place. Lawrence further noted in reporting that on other issues, the two appeared to be in lockstep, although Pritzker sought to characterize the meeting as a relationship builder more than a policy discussion. Lawrence reported that the immediate goal of both is to show a united front to secure the 2024 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Johnson signed a joint letter with Paul Vallis during the runoff, saying both would support it. Governor Pritzker said Johnson's election, quote, absolutely enhances the odds that Chicago lands the convention, with the governor saying, quote, Chicago demonstrates that we're a state that's pro-choice, that's stood up for labor rights and for workers, and we're a state that is opposed to assault weapons, and that's not true of some of the other competitors. The effort to lure the DNC to Chicago could also help Johnson secure an early victory with trade and service unions, which have supported the effort and would be vital to preparation for the convention, as well as make inroads with the lodging industry that hopes large-scale events will help its continued recovery from the pandemic slowdown in tourism. Lawrence further reported that Johnson, who's been a Cook County commissioner since 2018 and worked as an organizer with the politically influential Chicago Teachers Union for a decade, comes into office with better relationships in Springfield than outgoing Mayor Lori Lightfoot did four years ago after being swept into office as the ultimate outsider. 
Lawrence also reported that Johnson said of the meeting with the governor, quote, it's great to have a real partner to not only rebuild our city, but to make sure that individuals who wish to be small business owners and large corporations can actually have a city that works and the entire body of government at every single level that's willing to work together. Amid AbbVie's efforts to fend off competitive pressure on sales of its blockbuster drug Humira, the pharmacy giant cut its full-year guidance and hit a roadblock with one of its cancer drugs. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported, citing an SEC filing that the North Chicago-based company disclosed to investors on Wednesday that it took a $150 million expense hit related to research and development costs. As a result, AbbVie is cutting its projected earnings per share by $0.08. Cents. A day after cutting guidance, AbbVie also announced that it's voluntarily withdrawing its cancer drug Imbruvica from an accelerated FDA approval process for certain indications after the agency said there was insufficient information in studies of the drug. Imbruvica, which AbbVie has developed with Johnson & Johnson and Pharmacilix, is a cancer drug already approved to treat several blood cancers, but AbbVie was seeking approval for certain patients with mantle cell lymphoma, an aggressive and rare form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Other already approved indications for Imbruvica are not affected by the failed FDA approval process for this use. Davis noted that this week's stumbles come as AbbVie navigates new pressures on its business. For the first time, AbbVie's rheumatoid arthritis drug Humira faces biosimilar competition this year. CEO Richard Gonzalez said on the company's February earnings call that AbbVie will see sales erosion this year and in 2024, but that he expects Humira to become more stable in 2025 and 2026. Davis further noted that AbbVie is relying on other drugs, including Imbruvica, to help recoup some Humira revenue losses, but it's proving to be an uphill battle. AbbVie shares already took a hit last year when the company cut its full-year sales outlook due to slowing Imbruvica sales. AbbVie's next earnings call is scheduled for April 27th. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that tech giant Salesforce and Facebook parent company Meta are marketing a combined 240,000 square feet of downtown office space for sublease, a pair of cost-cutting moves as both companies undergo rounds of layoffs. In the larger of the two listings, San Francisco-based Salesforce is looking to shed up to 125,000 square feet across five floors in the newly built Salesforce Tower at Wolf Point, that according to a company spokesperson. Separately, Meta is seeking to offload 115,000 square feet across five floors of its office at 151 North Franklin, the company confirmed to Cranes. The offering from Salesforce amounts to 25% of its 500,000-square-foot footprint at its namesake building, while Meta is marketing almost 44% of the office, at least in the 35-story Franklin Street building in 2018. Ecker noted in reporting that the sublease listings, which are among the largest downtown, could be more evidence of the economy worsening the problems that office landlords have already been dealing with as remote and hybrid work have both become normalized. Salesforce and Meta have both faced pressure from investors to shed expenses after years of strong growth and steadily rising stock prices. Salesforce disclosed in January that it was cutting 10% of its workforce, or around 7,000 workers. Earlier this month, Meta disclosed plans to lay off 10,000 workers, or around 13% of its global staff. 
That followed a wave of 11,000 job cuts the company made in November as its revenue came up well short of where expected. It's unclear whether any of those cuts may be in Chicago, where the company had 500 workers as of last summer. Ecker further noted in reporting that the Salesforce and Meta editions bring the total amount of sublease downtown to an all-time high of more than 7.8 million square feet, up from 6 million a year ago and 3.3 million when the pandemic began. That according to CBRE. Mark Walsh reported for Cranes that the federal appeals court in Chicago on Friday upheld the dismissal of an antitrust suit filed against Chicago Parking Meters Incorporated, the firm to which former Mayor Richard M. Daley awarded a 75-year concession for meters on city streets in 2008 and soon raised prices, leading to finger-pointing over whether the city got a bad deal. Judge Diane P. Wood wrote for a unanimous panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, quote, The deal itself might have been foolish, short-sighted, or worse, and if one is to believe news reports, it may have saddled Chicago with the most expensive street parking in the country. The decision continued, quote, But that is not enough to state a claim for a violation of the antitrust laws. The parking concession was one of several deals made by Daly and approved by the city council to avoid tax increases. The others involved downtown garages and the Chicago Skyway. But parking downtown went from $3 an hour in 2008 to $6.50 an hour in 2013 and is now $7 an hour as of reporting last year from the Sun-Times, which noted that CPM had recouped its $1.16 billion investment and earned more than $500 million more by 2022. Had the lawsuit prevailed, it could have presented incoming mayor-elect Brandon Johnson an unexpected revenue lifeline after promises that he would not increase property taxes while keeping up with ballooning pension payments and a slew of investments he's promised in order to help working-class families. On the campaign trail, Johnson singled out the parking meter deal as the exact kind of privatization deal he would avoid as mayor, But Friday's ruling is the latest sign that Chicago's future mayors will continue to be stuck with the deal. The Illinois Court of Appeals upheld the deal against state law challenges on several grounds in a 2014 opinion, and a federal district court dismissed the suit, and in its opinion Friday, the Seventh Circuit affirmed that. Judge Wood noted that besides metered parking, there are private garages and lots and unregulated street parking. But even if the court held that meter parking spaces were monopolized, She said that the deal is categorically outside the reach of federal antitrust law because it represents state government action. The city retains the power to regulate CPM under the concession, such as by adding or removing metered spaces and closing streets, the court said, even though the city must compensate CPM under some circumstances, such as when it takes a parking space out of service. That's Cranes Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Cranes reporter Ali Marathi. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Cranes Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.